Scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard her, the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. The word of the Lord. Uh, when you think about the uh, quintessential nativity scene, uh, what is it that you tend to think of? You know, what's interesting is that if you're uh, from more Western contexts, like Western nations, uh, you tend to think about Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, right? Uh, all of whom, this is a, bit of a, a little bit of a tangent, but all of whom are strangely uh, light-skinned for being uh, people from the Middle East, um, especially those of the working class who probably worked outside all day. Uh, and then the only people that seem to have a skin complexion that's remotely close to an actual uh, Middle Eastern skin complexion uh, are these strange figures called the Magi, the wise men. Um, as you think about the, the Magi, the wise men, uh, what do you know about the Magi, about the wise men? Or at least what do we tend to think about that we know about them? You know, it's interesting uh, about the Magi that there's really some really unfortunate assertions about these men. For example, first, uh, despite the song, uh, the wise men, the Magi, uh, they were not kings. Um, at nowhere in the entire description that we just read, which is the only description of them, nowhere do we see that there were only three of them. The only thing that we're told is that there's three gifts that were given. Uh, and then plus, if you look at verse 11, uh, they weren't actually at the manger. They came to a house where Jesus was. 
Uh, there's a lot of different things that could be said about these men's assumptions that are made that unfortunately distract us from the really important events that Matthew is actually trying to communicate here in this passage in Matthew 2. Events that really do reveal the, the greater depth of knowledge uh, that can be found in Emmanuel, God with us. Now, if you've been with us, we've been in a series looking at uh, this idea of Emmanuel, God with us. We've been looking at the most pivotal event in all of human history, which of course is the coming of Jesus. Uh, And historically, the church has celebrated Advent, the weeks leading up to Christmas, essentially to do what we've already been talking about, how we look back to the coming of Jesus. We also look ahead to his coming again. And today, here in this passage, we look at the wisdom that is found in this Advent story. For there is great wisdom to be found in Emmanuel, in God with us. But to see that great wisdom, we need to see the different kinds of wisdom that are presented in this story. And to show you what I mean, I want to look at three different kinds of wisdom that are presented here. First, we have the wisdom of the Magi. We have the wisdom of the stars. And then we have the wisdom of God. Let's take a look at all three of those different types of wisdom. Uh, the first, the wisdom of the Magi. You know, there's a lot of debates, again, about who these men were, who they are. Uh, there are uh, even traditions that claim to know these men's names, um, their countries of origin, uh, the dates of their conversions. Uh, there are some who even believe they know where their bodies currently rest. Uh, Needless to say, uh, none of that's actually verifiable, and probably more importantly, none of that matters, actually, Um, because the details that we are given here in Matthew are very important ones. They're here for a reason, and so what I want us to see is see a little bit uh, and gain a little bit of knowledge around what Scripture actually tells us about these men, and then also some things that we can actually verify historically, so we have a better sense of who these magi are. Uh, the first thing to note is that the Greek word for magi uh, essentially gives us a clue about who these men were. These men, they were likely part of a priestly class um, um, from the Medes or the Persians. Uh, other scholars believe that they might have been Babylonian. Uh, that word would have described these men as essentially being astrologers or magicians who would have studied the stars and then would have attributed meaning to what they saw in the stars. And now during this time period, it's important to note that um, those who studied the stars, if they ever saw an unusual cosmic event in the sky, oftentimes they believed that that was a sign of either the birth of a king or the death of a king. And there's been numerous times throughout history where that has been recorded. There's one in particular where there was a particularly interesting cosmological event uh, right around the time of Julius Caesar's death. And so there was this belief that, ah, yeah, see, these wise men, these magi, they know what they're talking about. Um, I think we would probably see that more as a... a, What's the word I'm looking for? A happenstance as opposed to actually the stars aligning for Julius Caesar. But this was essentially what these men did. They believed that the the, the stars were the declaration of a coming king. The second thing to note, though, is not only would they have been viewed as astrologers, this is also a much more exalted term, magi, this term given to these men, because this would have been a class of people that would have been highly educated, 
They were deeply interested in religion and in science and in philosophy and many other related fields. Uh, in more modern times, I know that when we hear astrologers or we hear magicians, uh, we tend to think, ah, that's just superstition or that's just faulty non-science claims. But it's important to note that these men would not have been viewed as conjurers of cheap tricks. Rather, they would have been incredibly learned men. They would have been respected as extraordinarily wise because of the knowledge that they had. You know, they would be the modern-day Ivy League intellectuals. They truly would have been treated as wise men. And so I emphasize that simply to say and simply to point out that these men were the most enlightened of their day. And they were the most learned men of their day. And it would be wrong for us to ever assume or to think of them as unenlightened star chasers. These were careful, wise scholars who saw something. They saw something extraordinary in the sky. These men knew something unusual, something special had happened, which grabbed their attention and it catalyzed their journey west. That is how they, this is, uh, that however leads us, of course, to where they ended up. Because what's interesting about what they were uh, chasing and discovering was that though these were brilliant, learned men, we know that their wisdom ultimately was fallible. They knew, we know that they ultimately did not have all knowledge that could be had. Uh, this is, of course, true because um, they, as they looked to the stars, they did require further wisdom and further guidance in order to get where they were trying to go. Which brings us to the second kind of wisdom that we see here is we need to understand the wisdom of the stars. Right? This is an important point. Uh, what's interesting about their journey is that they looked to the stars and they saw that the stars had declared in some way the greatness and the presence of God. But the Magi's wisdom and their studying of the stars ended up terminating short of God himself. I mean, look at verse 5. I mean, what was it that gave these travelers, these magi, what they actually wanted to find, which was Jesus? What was it? I mean, it was not initially the star that took them to Jesus. The star actually took them to Jerusalem first. They didn't actually end up heading to Bethlehem until they were pointed in that direction. And what was it that sent them in the right direction? Well, if you look at verse 6, it was an Old Testament prophecy from Micah 5. In other words, the wisdom of the stars was insufficient without God's word pointing them in the right direction. Now, this might seem uh, fairly inconsequential, but I sure, assure you that it is absolutely not, because this happens time and time again, where the wisest among us possess wisdom but can assume that that wisdom is sufficient to achieve ultimate knowledge, ultimate wisdom, when in reality, that's not the case. They take the wisdom of the stars, so to speak, the wisdom that can be seen, and they assume it to be trustworthy, too often on its own merit. But like the Magi, many of the wisest among us get so close, but not close enough. Because the wisdom of the stars, the wisdom of this world, might give glimpses of God, but it could never tell us who that God is. And when we don't know him, we fall short of having true wisdom. And to get there, 
We need more than what can be attained through sight and through knowledge of this world. And as I consider the landscape of modern wisdom, I actually find this to still be the case. There are a lot of similar parallels. You know, for us as modern people, we do have a measure of wisdom that we can uh, ascertain from what is around us. But too often, that, is, uh, that wisdom is limited because it doesn't have what it ultimately needs. Let me give you some example of what I mean by this. Um, there's a particular area of interest for me, and those of you who know me know this to be true, uh, but there's a lot of wisdom that can be found in a lot of modern uh, movements around justice, around equity, around loving and caring for our neighbors. There's an enormous amount of wisdom in many social movements like Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too movement and uh, a lot that's happening in the immig- in merciful immigration reform and in, I don't know how else to describe this other than the, like, the do you movement, right? This idea of like owning who you are. There's a lot of wisdom in a lot of those movements because each of them demand that people be treated justly and mercifully. And that is a good and right and truly wise thing. However, all these movements are often like the Magi looking for stars. They have tapped into something that is right and true, yet the irony is that for all the wisdom that they might have achieved, it's still insufficient if those movements ever reject the guidance given by God's word. And here's why this matters. Here's why I'm drawing this out. I mean, why is there wisdom? in the Black Lives Matter movement, in the Me Too movement, in the immigration reform movements, in the Do You movements. Why is there wisdom there? Well, it's because people have dignity and value and ought to be treated justly. And that, of course, is a biblical idea because it's God who has made all people in his image and therefore all people have intrinsic worth and value and ought to be treated with dignity and respect and compassion and love. And here's the point, that without that transcendent truth given to us by the word of God, those movements end up having real no foundation. All they've done is borrow the concept without acknowledging the source of that concept, which inevitably leads to a movement that becomes completely untenable. And it eventually derails getting a person close, but not close enough to true wisdom. I mean, again, these movements, they rightly emphasize the wisdom about the dignity of every individual. And that every individual ought to have a right to live a life that is free from unjust restrictions and marginalization and oppression and persecution. These are biblical ideas created by God. But also, those biblical ideas, to be truly wise, also comes with a submission to the purposes that God has for his creation. But when that wisdom is detached from God's creative purposes, it too often devolves into this free-for-all of personal autonomy, where we become gods over such wisdom. We desire to be gods over such wisdom instead of submitting to the God who established that wisdom. You know, for example, again, with these modern day movements, there's much wisdom that's there about personal freedom 
and a rejection about unjust restrictions, but when it's not submitted to God's words and purposes, it derails so many views of how we understand things in the world. Personal freedom and a rejection of unjust restrictions that's not submitted to the word of God derails our view of things like sexuality and our, our desire to do what we please with our bodies because no one has the right to make any decisions about what is right for me and my body, even the creator of that body, the establisher of my sexuality and body. Freedom, personal freedom, the rejection of restrictions not submitted to the word of God derails our understanding of fulfillment and purpose because now it's my purpose is solely tied to unchallengeable inner desires that I might have instead of being tied to a purpose established by the one who created me. It derails our understanding of what it means to be human. You know, our definition is now based on what best serves me in the moment, not based, again, on definitions of the one who created us. It derails our understanding of power and acquisition of power because now my hope for living in the ways that I desire to live is tied up in acquiring power or those who think like me acquiring power instead of recognizing that power is being given by God for the purpose of serving others and serving him. Power becomes this self-serving mechanism to attain a personal agenda. All of this intrinsic worth and value that a person have, it all derails into untenable personal autonomy that leaves people without guidance and without boundaries, all of which, I say all this just to say, it started out seeming wise. There's wisdom in where things start, but when it's not connected to the word of God guiding and pointing us in the direction we ought to go, it derails. And I say all of this because there's much wisdom that the world has to offer. There's much wisdom to find in the stars. But like the Magi, unless that wisdom is made clear through the, word of, uh, the truth of God's words, it will always be insufficient. We all need to end up in Jerusalem at some point. We all need to hear the word of God in, all, uh, in order to get to where we want to go. But the other thing that I find interesting about this story is there's a flip side to it. There's another interesting reality about this wisdom that was found in Jerusalem in the Word of God. Uh, remember something that we have noted every single week as we've gone through uh, the, the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, who was this Gospel written for? It was written for the Jewish people, right? Primarily. But again, look at the story. Who do the Magi go to in order to get information about this coming king? Well, they ask the current king of Israel the chief priests and the teachers of the law who are completely clueless about what is happening. They have the answers. They're able to point in the right direction, yet they themselves did not realize what was going on. It took these pagan astronomers to see the, how the stars had aligned in order to present this coming king. It should not be this way. Why did the king of Israel, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law need to be told that the Messiah that they had been waiting for had come? Why weren't they the ones expecting this coming? 
Well, the reason is, is that they were distracted by other things. They were blinded by other things, so much so, if you know the story, Herod, the king, was so concerned about the coming of this new king that might supplant him that he had all the male children under the age of two murdered in order to keep his position of power. He had access to these great truths about the Messiah, but his power was more important to him. And I draw this out because this still happens today. Today, even within the church, those who hold the power of God's word and have access to all wisdom too often need to be told and shown what they should have already seen. Again, back to the the different social movements, just as an example. Worldly wisdom looks at the way that people of color, especially the black community, is treated and refuses to allow it to continue. Worldly wisdom has seen this. Worldly wisdom sees that women have too often been treated as less than and have refused to allow it to continue. And now we have the Me Too movement. Worldly wisdom has seen this. Worldly wisdom refuses to demonize immigrants and the poor and those who are otherwise marginalized. Worldly wisdom has seen this. And while we praise God for pockets of the church that take seriously these issues, why are there still so many pockets of the church that need to be shown that this is a problem? Why, when people think about white nationalism, do they still think and connect it to white evangelicalism? Why? Why does the church to movement even exist? A movement that calls out the sexual abuses and cover-ups in the church. Why? Why are the most ardent supporters of inhumane immigration policies too often also church-going folk? Why? Why do those who claim to hold all wisdom found in the word of God Why is it that they need to be shown how to use that wisdom? And lest we we assume that that's kind of an out there problem, if we're honest, we will find ourselves in one of these two camps to varying degrees. To varying degrees, we will do one of two things. On maybe one end of the spectrum, for some, maybe we overly embrace the wisdom of the world. And maybe that's where we go wrong. We know that while there might be... uh, There might be good wisdom in the world. It's important to know that that wisdom will always be left wanting. The world's wisdom about finding fulfillment and purpose and sexuality and pleasure and power and money and all these different things, personal autonomy, it will all prove to be insufficient, as we've just said. But there's others who have access to the word of God, all godly wisdom. And however, even though they hold all this wisdom, we can get distracted by other things, and lose sight of how that wisdom is to then be applied and shown in the world. Christians, I mean, for example, should be at the forefront of important social movements because we have the truth that gives guidance to those movements. Christians should be the most ethical in their business practices because we have the truth that guides those practices. Christians should be the most loving and gracious and merciful and hospitable people Because we have truth that produces such postures. 
And if this ends up not being the case, then the question has to be, what has distracted us from being able to properly use the truths of God's word? Now this problem, no matter what end of the spectrum we may end up finding ourselves on, this problem was for the Magi, it was the problem for those that were in Israel. But the problem, the ultimate problem is this, is that the wisdom of God, true wisdom, ultimate wisdom, is so unlike any other wisdom that we might find in this world, it becomes difficult for people to fully embrace unless you see it for what it is. And that's why when we need to see the wisdom in Emmanuel, in God with us. What does it mean for God to be with us, and why is there great depths of wisdom there? But lastly, the wisdom of God. The, the wise men, they found Jesus when they were compelled by what they saw in the sky, this declaration of a king for whom the stars aligned. But in the end, of course, they, needed, they submitted their compulsion, or what they thought they knew, to the leading and instruction of the word of God, specifically that passage in Micah 5 that they're uh, presented with. They looked out into the cosmos. They had known something amazing had happened. They submitted to the guidance of this word. And what did they end up finding? I mean, they found something that they did not assume that they were going to find. These wise men, again, knew something extraordinary had happened. They had gone on this long journey looking for this king, the king that the cosmos were declaring. But they ended up in Jerusalem, which is, of course, where you'd expect to find a great and powerful king. This was the center of power. This was where the king was. This is where the chief priests and the teachers, the most powerful of Israel, this is where they were. So, of course, the king should be there. But we know that they didn't find this king in the center of power. Rather, they found him in Bethlehem, miles away from that center of power. They found this king on the lap of a poor teenage girl with a poor, unimportant carpenter. They found this king for whom the stars aligned as this meek and seemingly unimportant baby in an obscure and unimportant place. And this, this is the wisdom of God. This is a picture of the wisdom of God. It is wisdom that does not make sense to the world and to its magi, or even the powerful in Jerusalem. It is why worldly wisdom is so often insufficient, because godly wisdom is that the Son of God, the King and Creator of the universe, submitted himself to the will of the Father by coming in humility. Godly wisdom is him growing up without sin, for he submitted himself fully and completely to the law of God. Godly wisdom is for him to live that perfectly sinless life, only to one day die on the cross, which was the death of a criminal. For in the garden, we know, he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. He submits himself to this. This is godly wisdom. Paul in 1 Corinthians, which is part of your reflection quotes there, Paul says this, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, why is that? Why is it 
that it can seem like foolishness to some, but incredible wisdom and power to others. Well, it's because for those who see it as wisdom, there is this realization that God is glorious and righteous and holy, so much so that all creation declares his glory and that we desperately fall short of that perfection. And yet God in love knows this to be true, and so of course he sends his son into this broken and fallen world to take from us the imperfection and the unrighteousness that has separated from us, or separated us from him. And this story, the story of the cross, makes sense to those who have eyes to see this as godly wisdom. For those with eyes to see, Romans 1 says that though we claim to be wise, we become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. Because we assume that what is here and in front of us is that which we ultimately need, when in reality, it's not. In reality, human wisdom always falls short. But we look to the one who holds all wisdom, and his wisdom is a wisdom that says, though he was great, he became poor for our sake. That though he was perfect and without sin, he became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. This is what we need. We need that kind of wisdom because it's that kind of wisdom that ultimately takes us to God. It's that kind of wisdom that takes us where worldly wisdom could never take us. And so when we submit our worldly wisdom, that which we believe we know to the truths of God's word, know that like the Magi, we find Jesus there. You know, it's extraordinary to me in verse 11 what happened when they saw him? What does it say? They come across this really unexpected baby that they weren't expecting, and it says they worshipped him. I mean, that's the wisdom of God, that these great, wise, powerful men come across a baby, and their only reaction is to bow down and worship him. It doesn't make sense. It seems upside down, and yet this is the wisdom of God, submission and worship to him. And so I pray that as we experience this wisdom found, this wisdom of God in Jesus in this Advent season, that we too would be left in this state of awe where there is nothing left for us to do but worship him. May that be true for all of us. Happy Advent. Let's pray.